Okay, good morning everyone. It's great to be back. Sorry about the prolonged break and conflicts, but we're back. Next week is Erev Shavuos, Tuesday. Anyone interested in a Parsha class or we're taking next week off? Erev Yantav, you'll be here? All right, if you'll be here, I'll be here. You sure you're going to be here? Am I standing here by myself next week? Okay, so Mirza Shem will continue next week. Our Parsha class this morning is generously co-sponsored by Mr. and Mrs. Alan Schachter and Myrna and Seymour Kosowski in honor of Rabbi Goldberg and BRS community for the wonderful educational programs. Thank you for your generous sponsorship. And I want to add, uh, we'll do our learning this morning. In memory, it's my uh, grandmother's 25th yurt site this week. Yenta Rachel Bas Shmuel, her neshama should have an aliyah. We have the privilege this week of beginning the fourth book of the Torah, and with it, Parshas Bamidbar. We've moved, as we've spoken about many times, Sevabracious, the family dynamic, family dysfunction trying to turn to function, to becoming the birth of our nation, Sefer Shmos, Vayikra, a little detour, Torah's Koanim, the guide for the priests, and now Sefer Bamidbar are the continued growing pains of the Jewish people which should have been a linear, straight entry into Eretz Yisrael and the realization of the vision God had for our people to transform the world. Instead, in Sefer Bamidbar, we have the rebellious adolescents, we have the Jewish people finding their way, and uh, therefore a number of mistakes and discretions, learning opportunities that we, that we encounter. Sefer Bamidbar begins with a census, with a count, God spoke to Moshe in the Midbar from the old Moed and instructed him, Go count the totality of the Jewish people according to their family, according to their household, according to the number, according to the name. I'm not going to review. We spent time last year. You could listen online to why... The Almighty instructed a census. Is it like Rashi, out of Chiba? Is it out of love? Is it pragmatic in order to calculate the army? Remember at this point, Jewish people were going to go into the land of Israel. They needed an army in order to fight their enemies, in order to be able to conquer the land. What was the driving factor of the census? As I say, we discussed that in, in the past. But God counts the Jewish people. Each of them have this opportunity to pass before Moshe Rabbeinu. And to feel significant, to feel mispar shemos. A mispar is a number, a shame is a name. It seems to be a contradiction. Are you a number or a name? A number connotes that you don't have individuality, that you blend and conform into a greater entity and serve a greater mission. A name is individuality. When the Nazis tried to dehumanize the Jews, they took away their name and they gave them, assigned them a number. A name is deeply personal. A name is a description of the individual. Whereas a number is generic, you're one of many. So which is it? Mispar Shemos. As I've mentioned in the past, Rav Pincus in the Sefer and Chumash explains it's both. That our mission is to both be part of a greater army, to be a number, to not have to express our individuality in a way we break out from our tradition and from our greater collective mission. We're a number, we're in an army. We're assigned a number. But on the other hand, we maintain a name, we have individuality. And that is Judaism. It's the blend between unity and diversity. Unity, not uniformity, 
diversity, not divisiveness. You've heard all this from me countless times. But it's finding our way for our individuality and at the same time blending in to the greater, to the greater whole. In fact, our parsha includes, in addition to the census, it includes the next section, page 732. Jewish people are now given each a flag, a banner, a logo, an emblem. And it's according to their flag, to their emblem, that's how they are to encamp. There's a protocol. You know, if you watched uh, the president uh, come down the steps in Israel, you even the mics picked up a conversation at Shuntav where Bibi and Trump were both making fun. They didn't know what the protocol, where they were supposed to go, where they're supposed to stand. This protocol, stand here and camp here, go over here. Jewish people, two to three million people, did not get to just go where they wanted. Everyone gathered under their banner. Everyone find your way to your flag. And then they had their camping assignment where surrounding the Mishkan they were to be. Camping assignments weren't always fair. We know that the tribe of uh, Ruvain suffered terribly from the uh, assignment because of Korach. We've discussed that in the past as well. So one had to be careful of their neighbor. Even when God Himself assigns where to live, where to be, where to reside, your guard can never be down from the influence of others. person has to always be vigilant in living uh, the virtuous life they're meant to live. But we had these assignments based on our logo and based on our flag. The Salam Rebbe, the Nesiva Shalom, quotes a, uh, an amazing medrash in this regard. The medrash says in Bereshis Rabbah, expressed a great love, an amazing act of affection by giving the Jewish people each their logo, their flag, their banner. That when the angels descended on Harsinai, they each came down and they had their own logo. They had their own flag. When the Jewish people at Arsinai saw the angels, each had a logo, each had a flag. They were jealous and they craved the same thing. So what happened? Wouldn't it be amazing if we too? That's what you want? You want a logo? No problem. I'll give each of you a flag. And then the parsha begins. Hashem says, that's what you want? No problem. You too want a flag, a banner, a logo? Not a problem. You can have an insignia. That's the Medrash. The Medrash further says, Your banner, your logo should be for me. Lama, Shehem Banai, they're my children. Shinemar, Banim Atem Hashem Lokechem, Vehem Tzivosai, they're my legions, my army. Votesias Tzivosai, Sami Bene Yisrael, Meretz Mitzrayim. So Hashem says, do it for me. And the Slanam Rebbe wonders, why do angels have a logo? Why are the Jewish people jealous and envious and desirous of their own logo? Why is this an expression of the Almighty's love and affection? 
And why does Hashem say, direct your banner, your logo, I'll give it to you, but direct it from me. What's going on? What's this really all about? The Salaam Rebbe and the Siva Shalom develops, I think, very beautifully this idea that a person feels meaning and purpose in life when they feel a sense of mission. When they're not generic, when they're not just one of the crowd, when they're not invisible or insignificant, when they're not somebody who serves no purpose whatsoever. We each find meaning and purpose by having an individual mission in this world. What does it mean for an angel to have an emblem, a logo? What it means is, what is an angel after all? What are malach Hashem? A malach is an expression of the Almighty's will in this world for a specific purpose. The angel that came to tell Sarah she was going to have a baby. The angel that was going to go to Sodom, destroy Sodom. The angel, an angel is not some celestial being that's independent or in competition with the Ribbon Shlolom. An angel is an expression of the Almighty in this world. It is serving a purpose for which God sent that angel. What it means for the angel to have a logo or an emblem or a banner is that the angel has a mission. This is why they exist. This is the purpose for which they were created. They wouldn't exist if it were not to express the will of the Almighty in one fashion or another. And that logo or that emblem, that insignia, is not just artwork. It is somehow reflective of their unique mission of why they're here. And the Jewish people stood at our Sinai and collectively received the Torah from the Ribbonah Shalom. We became not just a regular, secular, mundane people, a political entity. We became a sacred covenantal community with a mission. And they saw the angels who didn't only have a collective logo, but each had their own. And the Jewish people said, we want a logo. We want a degel. We want a flag. We want to know our mission. Why are we here? And because of God's love and affection, He gave them insight and access to what that mission is, to why they are here. It's mitoch chiba. It comes from love. It comes from affection. But Hashem says, you're bonai, you're my children. You're tzivosai, you're my army, you're my legion. You have to direct it towards me. It should be in my service. Your mission is not to have the biggest house or the nicest car. Your mission is not to have the most things. Your mission is not to get the most attention or the most honor or the most glory. I'll give you a logo. I'll give you insight into your individual, unique, personal mission. Your talents and skills. What you uniquely were positioned in this world to do. I'll give it to you, that insight. You can have that flag, that logo. But don't direct it towards your own name and honor and glory. Direct it, Lishmi, from me, to advance our mission to improve and repair the world. That's the Islam Rebbe says, that's the notion of mispar shemos, the notion of a name and a number. A number connotes something which is great and vast. You don't have to give a number when you have one or two. You give a number because there's a lot. There's a great magnitude. So like the Pasuk says, we say in davening every day from Tehillim, monem mispar lakochavim lekulam shemos yikra. God counts the number of stars. You know, the galaxies, the number of stars in the heavens are billions and billions and billions. So you might think, the Salaam Rebbe actually quotes this, 
המדענים, הטוענים שאומנם יש כוכבים, יש להם מטרה ותועלת, ויש להם כוכבים שאין ללא שום תפקיד ומטרה ואין המועילים כלום. says mistakenly there are scientists who believe, astronomers who believe there are stars that play a critical purpose in the world, and there are stars that are insignificant, that don't need to be there, they're gratuitous. But says the Son of Rebbe, that's not our tradition. We believe monem espar l'kulchavim. God knows the billions of stars. They're billions. Maybe they all blend together. Maybe some are unnecessary. You might think, but no. L'kulam shemos yikra. Everyone has a name. A name is personal. A name is individual. A name is descriptive. A name creates connection. Every one of them has a purpose. Ein kochav lalo matara. Every star has an essence, a goal, a purpose, a meaning, and the name reveals the reason for which it's creating. So all the more so, if that's true for the stars, the billions in the heaven, every Jew, every human being, is not just a number blending into the, the census of history. But we're a name. God gave us a name. We have a flag, a logo, an emblem. We have a banner, a rally cry, a mission, a purpose. We're not just here to serve ourselves. We have what to accomplish in this world. The world is waiting for us to make a contribution that no one else, no one who came before us and no one who comes after us, that no one else in the world can do. We don't just blend in. We're unique. And that's the nitzchiyas, that's the timelessness of this parsha. Says the Slanam Rebbe, what do we care? Reuven, Shimon, everyone had their own flag, their logo, their degel. This one was on the north, this one was on the south, the west. Who cares? It's ancient history. Isn't the Torah only supposed to give us lessons and messages and commandments that are enduring, that continue to illuminate our lives, that give us instruction? Who cares? It's ancient history. It should be a footnote in Chumash. Who camped where? Who had what flag? What's irrelevant? Says the Salaam Rebbe, the relevance is to remind us that we too have our own flag. We too have our own mission. That we can't camp in someone else's camp. Salaam Rebbe writes elsewhere, that's Avoda Zara. Avoda, which is Zara to us. To try to imitate someone else. To try to apply someone else's mission to you. To try to live in someone else's encampment to try to take someone else's assignment or live under someone else's flag, is Avodah Zarah. We classically translate Avodah Zarah as idolatry. The Salaam Rebbe says not idolatry, but it's an Avodah which is Zarah to you. It's foreign, it's strange, it's not your assignment. It's not your mission. We each were given different missions and different purposes and different potential and a different impact that we're meant to leave on this world. And that's the Nitzchius. That is the timelessness of our Parsha, the Parsha of the Degolim, the Parsha of the flags, to spend our lives trying to identify what's our flag and what is our, and what is our mission. So the Parsha again begins with the census, it then turns to the flags and the camping assignments. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, I've shared this before, has a wonderful insight. He says, if the Salaam Rebbe is right, he doesn't reference the Salaam Rebbe, but if the Salaam Rebbe's Torah is right, that the flag represents individuality and uniqueness, 
personality, personal mission, doesn't that run a tremendous risk of divisiveness among the Jewish people? Doesn't that run an enormous risk of the Jewish people infighting, breaking down, civil war, each trying to advance their flag? My flag is more important. My flag has priority. My flag is the one that should dictate to your flag. Why didn't that happen? The Jewish people didn't implode in the desert with a civil war. Says Rav Yaakov, you know why? Because true, there are 12 tribes, each had their own flag, their own logo. They were encamped north, south, east, west. But what traveled at their center? What was in the middle? The Mishkan and the Aron and the Luchos. When the Ribbono Shalom, when the Almighty is in the middle of the encampment, you can afford for everyone to have their own logo and banner, flag and insignia. If there's no unifying mission, if there's no greater purpose of serving the Ribbono Shalom, of adhering to the dictates of His Torah, of advancing the values of Yadus, then you're right. Everyone with their own flag can implode into a civil war. But when you have a shared mission and vision that unites you, you can afford to have diversity if you have unity. Without unity, the diversity becomes a sense of divisiveness and fighting. You know, tonight, tomorrow, or Yom Yerushalayim, the 50th anniversary of the miraculous summer, 50 years ago, the great summer of revelation. I spoke about it this past Shabbos, which I won't rehash, but I'll tell you an amazing insight. Rabbi Yossi Klein Alevi, Yossi Klein Alevi wrote the book Like Dreamers. Phenomenal book if you haven't read it. And he's a great individual. Really bright, insightful, warm person. He was in our community a couple years ago. So Yossi Klein Alevi says, when he wrote the book, if you, if you read the book, you'll see, the members of the 55th Brigade of Paratroopers who liberated Yerushalayim following the Six-Day War emerged to become the who's who and the top leader of diametrically opposed movements in Israel. You've got the Gush Emunim movement, the settler movement, who are now building and expanding the boundaries of Israel. And you have the left, the anti-settler movement, the extreme left of Israel, all emerge from the same brigade, that brigade of paratroopers. And he, like Dreamers, is written in a... The narrative follows their lives of these people from their youth to when they're in the army to when they fight in the Six-Day War to after the Six-Day War when they depart to lead really opposing, conflicting movements. And he says, how is it possible that it didn't lead to a civil war in Israel? You see, the left and right... We're not debating something important, but something which wasn't uh, existential. In other words, you could have a debate. I know if we live in a world where everything is existential. But take, you could have a debate about taxes. What will stimulate the economy? Lowering taxes or raising taxes? It's an important debate. And it's enormous consequences. And one can argue it's very significant. But the country will not live or die. Its future, its existence won't depend on it. Financial health may, its existence won't. But what the left and right in Israel were debating about settlements, about the boundaries, about peace process, was not something which was important. It was something that talked about the very existence. Each one felt, your opinion will cost us the state of Israel. And the other one felt, no, what you're pursuing 
will cost us the state of Israel. The stakes were as high as can, can be in the debate they had. So how is it possible that it didn't turn into a civil war when the stakes were that high? Yossi Klein Alevi says something brilliant. He says it's very simple. You know how? Because this brigade of paratroopers, every three years, had to fight another war. So 67, they fought the Six-Day War. 70, they fought the War of Attrition. 73, they fought the Yom Kippur War. They kept coming back every year to do reserves together. And then every three years, they fought a war together. So in between, when they were fighting with each other, they maintained a sense of unity because every now and then they got back together to fight the enemy from without. And being united to have to fight the enemy from without helped keep a sense of unity from within despite the stakes being so great and so high with that, that which they were debating. And he talks about, Yassi Klein Alevi, the interpersonal relationships and the respect, despite disagreeing beyond anything you could ever imagine, but when you have to fight a common enemy on the outside, when you have something that unites you, it gives you the ability to have a respect, to be able to get along, despite how significant what you're arguing about. It's Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. In that case, it's the state of Israel, it's the well-being of the Jewish people, it's the Jewish destiny and mission. In Rav Yaakov's case, in our parsha, it's the Mishkan being at the center of the circle. We can afford to each have another flag and logo and emblem. We can afford to promote our individuality, our unique mission in the world, when we are united by common goals, when we are united by a common mission, nothing more significant, of course, than the service of the Ribona Shalom himself. Parsha continues, talks about the progeny within the census of Moshe and Aaron, the census of the Levium, which we'll talk about momentarily. The Levium are counted separately from the Jewish people. Why are they counted separately? Before they're assigned their special task, because they didn't participate in the Chaita Egel. Since they didn't participate in the Chaita Egel, they were not destined to suffer the consequence, the punishment of the Chaita Egel. And therefore God counts them separately. Every year I recount the insight of Rav, Chaim, of Rav Shmulevitz, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who says what, God can't count the Levium within the census but still not punish them? In order to remind himself not to punish them, he had to count them separately? Why couldn't he just count everyone together and then hold those who violated the Chaita Egel accountable and those that were innocent, don't punish them? Why do you have to count them separately? And Rav Chaim Shmulevitz says you see a very, very important lesson from here. That we suffer the consequences of those we surround ourselves with, even if we're not guilty of their transgressions ourselves. That who we associate with says everything about us. So, you know, a bunch of kids are together and do something mischievous. One of the kids says, I didn't do it. I was just there. Well, why were you there? You're guilty by association. You've heard that term. Guilty by association. We have that concept in the world of finance. You look at the stock market and a company's evaluation, its market value can go up or down billions of dollars in a day when it has no new information, no new profit or loss or revenue or liability. It just belongs to a sector of the market that moved up or down that day. So real estate, banking, biotech, whatever, it had a good day, that company goes up with it. It has a bad day, it goes down with it. 
says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the same is true with us. We are defined in association with the people that we associate with. And that's the idea of davening with a minion, he says. When you daven with a minion, when you're on your own, you're judged on your own. You hope that the merits of the people in the minion outweigh your demerits, and therefore your stock rises by davening together with a community, by being connected with a community and with a minion. So the Rebbe Shalom had to count Levi separately, not because he couldn't calculate who deserved the punishment, but because to teach the lesson of guilt by association, that if we don't want to suffer the consequences, then we need to not be associated with those who are doing something which is wrong. We'll come back to Levi in a moment. Levi, of course, take the place in their designation from the Bechor, from the firstborn. So the Torah then turns to the question of the firstborn and redeeming the firstborn, then the organization of the Kohanim, and the Parsha ends with the great responsibility of the Kohanim to be cautious. This is what they need to do in order to live and not die. When they approach the Holy of Holies, they cannot come and look at the Holy as the Holy is inserted, or they will die. The Kohanim were responsible for transporting the holy items and for their safeguard and their well-being, but they couldn't gaze at them, even the Aron itself. So that is an overview of the parasha. Let's go a little bit into the Psukim, page 736. 736, Perek Yimel chapter 3, verse number 1. V'yela told us Aaron and Moshe b'yom di'ber Hashem as Moshe b'har Sinai. These are the offspring, these are the progeny of Aaron and Moshe on the day Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. V'yela shmos b'nei Aaron ha'bachor nadav avi o'elazar v'yizamar. These are the children of Aaron, the b'chor is nadav, and then avi o'elazar and yizamar. E'yela shmos b'nei Aaron ha'kohanim ha'meshucham ha'shemila yadam l'chahein. These are the names of the son of Aaron who were anointed kohanim, who were inaugurated to serve. They die tragically on the inauguration day of the Mishkan when they bring a foreign flame, a foreign fire. They didn't have any children. Elazar and Itamar were koanim during the time of Aaron. In other words, when the original appointment of Kahuna was given, it was given to specifically Aaron and his sons. For example, Pinchas, who is a grandson of Aaron, is not a Kohen. It's only later in Pasha's Pinchas when he is rewarded for his uh, zeal and alacrity in the service of the Rebona Shalom, he's given the Bris Kahuna. Why did he have to be given the Bris Kahuna? He was already, he's a grandson of Aram. The answer is he wasn't a Kohen. Only those who were specifically anointed were Kohanim on the spot. All others who were living who weren't anointed were not Kohanim. And those who would descend from those who were anointed would continue to be Kohanim themselves. So Pinchas had to be given that specific, that specific anointment, that specific appointment. Fine. The Pesach is interesting. Ela told us Aaron, Umoshe, 
These are the offspring of Aaron and Moshe. And then the Pesukim delineate whom? Specifically the offspring of Aaron. Why is Moshe mentioned in the Pasuk? It doesn't talk about Moshe's children. It talks about Aaron's children. And what happens to them? Banim lohayu lahem. They didn't have sons. Why is that relevant? One of the opinions about why they were struck down, they came to the Mishkan drunk, they offered a karbon that wasn't instructed of them. One of the opinions is they didn't have children. Why would that be? A, they didn't have children. They suffered not having children is, is punishable with death. It's a capital crime. Why would they be killed for that? The Ksav Sofer has an unbelievable insight. He says, Nadav and Aviyu intentionally did not have children. They didn't get married. One of the opinions why they were killed is they, didn't get, they chose not to get married. Not get, there's a mitzvah to get married, but it's not a capital crime not to, punishable by death. The Ksav Sofer says, Nadav and Aviyu looked around and came to the following conclusion. Only the Ksav Sofer could say this, I couldn't. They came to the following conclusion. He said, you know, who's greater, our father or our uncle? Our father Aaron or our uncle Moshe? Aaron certainly is great. He's an unbelievable individual. Oiv shalom, varodev shalom. But who is great? The greatest among all the prophets. Who is Medaber Pel Pel? Who speaks face to face with the Almighty? It's our uncle Moshe. Moshe dedicated all of his time to the service of Hashem, studying, learning the Almighty, being with Hashem. And what were the results of Moshe's life? What was the cost of that greatness? His children. Moshe's children. We don't study his children. He didn't pass the mantle of leadership to his children. His children claimed Nadav and Avi were neglected by their father in order for him to achieve that greatness. Our father spent time with us. But therefore he didn't achieve the same greatness as his brother, as our uncle. They strove to be like their uncle Moshe. They wanted a taste of that greatness. And they erroneously concluded that, you know what? Being great comes at the expense of time with your children. We're not going to get married. We're not going to have children that we're going to neglect. We're going to instead forfeit having a family in order to pursue the highest relationship with the Ribbon Shalom to be like our Uncle Moshe, but we don't want to leave children hurt in the process. Says the Ksav Sofer, that was a terrible miscalculation. They were struck down for that miscalculation. Because God does not want a relationship with Him to be in lieu of having a family. A relationship with God should inspire the family. A relationship with God is a family affair. It's not either or. It's not in conflict, but it complements one another. That was their terrible mistake. So maybe that's the illusion over here. Ubonim lohayu lahem. They didn't have sons. They didn't have a family. Maybe the Torah is alluding to their miscalculation, to what they did wrong and why they were struck down. They didn't get married. They didn't want to have children because they misunderstood the notion of what is necessary for a relationship with Hashem. So again, why does the Torah identify with Moshe? Ela told us Aaron and Moshe. These aren't the children of Moshe. These are Aaron's children. So Rashi quotes the famous Chazal from Sanhedrin. The Nikru told us Moshe Torah. Malamed, Torah, 
Because Moshe taught Aaron's children Torah, and you see from here that when one teaches Torah, when one inspires the children of their friend, they too become a parent to that child. We have biological parents, we have physical parents, and we have spiritual parents. The Gemara, when it talks about the relationship with the Rebbe, even when there's a conflict, finding the Aveda, do you return the lost item of your father or the lost item of your Rebbe? Which one comes first? Ideally, your father is also your Rebbe. But if they're not, the Gemara concludes, the lost item of your Rebbe. Because your father gives you life in this world, your Rebbe gives you life in the world to come. But you can have more than one father. A biological father, to whom you owe the greatest respect and appreciation, but also a spiritual father who gives a spiritual life, gives birth to a spiritual awakening within you. If you give a spiritual awakening, you spiritually give birth to the soul, awakening the soul of another. It is ki'ilu yilado. It's as if you gave birth, and if you gave birth to them. Rav Shechter, in the uh, new Sefer I shared with you, the Rav Shechter on the Parsha. So here on our Parsha, Rav Shechter says, another example of the existence of a father-son relationship, which is not biologically based, is the opinion of the Yerushalmi and Bikurim, that a ger, a convert, upon presenting his Bikurim to the Beis HaMikdash, can say, Arami Oved Avi, an Arabian tried to destroy my father. How can the convert say my father? It wasn't genetically their father, Yaakov Avinu. They can also say, I've come to the land that God swore to our forefathers. How can the convert say that God swore to my forefather? Shulchan Aruch rules according with the opinion that a convert, when they bench, in Birkas HaMazan, they say, You gave to our forefathers this great land. Why? Because the idea is that when the convert embraces Torah and the Torah way of life, they are born anew. Gershon is Geir Kikotin Shinola dummy. They are born again, born anew. And therefore they are connecting to the collective father, Yaakov Avinu, to our forefathers who were promised the land. So there's a notion of biological father, biological parents, and spiritual parents. And we see this play out in. In halacha, according to this, the Chachma Shlomo of Shechter quotes, the Chachma Shlomo comments that a couple unable to physically bear children can partially fulfill the mitzvah of pru revu if they adopt a boy or girl and raise them with Torah values. That you can become a parent those who struggle, and our heart goes out. We pray that all those who crave children should successfully have healthy children that give them nachas. But those who struggle with infertility who are unable to fulfill the technical mitzvah of pru'u according to the Chachma Shlomo, can fulfill a component of it by adopting a child whom they'll raise with Torah values. Chavetz Chaim writes that supporting yeshivas is also a fulfillment of this mitzvah. If you financially support yeshivas, you support children learning Torah, then you are contributing to giving birth to them. There's an element of fulfilling pru'u by teaching Torah to children, even if they're not your own, even if they're not your own biologically. Okay. The, um,
Who did I see? Someone else had another pshat here. Yeah, the Orachayim Hakadosh. The Orachayim Hakadosh says, "Ela told us Aaron and Moshe, v'lomane Ela told us Aaron, Lomar kibnei Aaron yachshivu al Moshe latzad shehu espala ba'adam v'chayu." Why does Moshe get credit as if they're his children? Because they really should have been wiped out, and they survived only because of Moshe's tefillah. Dechsev. Pasuk says of Aaron his son of Hashem Lashmido, God was going to destroy Aaron when the Chayta Egel, Aaron's role in the Chayta Egel, God was going to destroy. Vamru Shoilat Vilasu Lahatzil Elazar Visamar, that Moshe Davin for Elazar and Itamar, and because of Moshe's heartfelt prayers that were answered, they survived. So when one prays for another, one helps another through prayer. They also become a parent to another. So because Moshe davened for them. So Gemara Sanhedrin says, when one teaches Torah to another child, it's as if they give birth, or according to the Arachayim, when one davens for another, there's an element of parenting that other as well. The Kliyakar also comments here, Look at the Kliyakar. Ela told us Aaron and Moshe, Perish Rashi, Levisha Moshe Lomdam Torah, Domakilo Yoldam. Moshe taught him Torah to Zavigibroth. Venasa told us of the Yom Shadibra Shemito. Vikasha, Tim Kane, Koy Israel told us of Kilakulam Lima Torah. Kliyakar asked a great question. Why do we only identify the children of Aaron as the offspring of Moshe? Because he taught them Torah. To whom else did Moshe teach Torah? Everybody. So Moshe should be considered the father. Ela told us Moshe, Kla Yisrael. He taught everyone. Vod lama chazav amar Ela shenos bnei Aaron below his kiras Moshe. Afterwards, we again repeat. Ela shmos bnei. I'm sorry. Ela told us Aaron and Moshe. Then we say the Ela shmos bnei Aaron, and then a third time Ela shmos bnei Aaron. So why do we go back and repeat and leave Moshe out? Venera the Farsh says the Kliyakar of Fishinemar, Uva Aaron is Anna Fashem Odlash Midov, Ena Shmade Ela Kiloi Bonim, Kamash Perish Rash Pashis Akev, Vawilat Filas Moshe Lachatsain, Nimsa shows on Shne Bonim, Shitsa Moshe with Filas of Domikil Yodam, Venasu told us of Beyond the Vashem as Moshe Bar Sinai. The Kliyakar says, like the Orachaim, it's not the teaching of Torah which earned the association with Moshe, it's rather the fact that Moshe davened for them. And God was entreated. God listened to Moshe's tefillah. So when we're mentioning Elazar and Itamar, who were saved through Moshe's tefillah, that's when Moshe's name is mentioned. Which then subsequently leaves out Moshe. Why? So those Moshe succeeded in saving through his prayer, then Moshe's name is mentioned. But when the Torah goes on to mention Nadav and Aviu, who Moshe did not succeed in saving through his prayer, then Moshe's name is not mentioned. Now we understand why everyone here is mentioned. Okay, that's the Kliyakar's understanding. Good. Weiter. So we're told, Allah Zarni Tamar, Nadav and Aviyu die because of their sin.
Hashem says to Moshe, bring near the tribe of Levi, have them stand before Aaron, they will serve him. They're not serving Aaron, they're assisting Aaron. Rashi writes, Mahu Asherus, Vishamrus Mishmartal, Fishashmiris, and Mikdash Alav, Shalik Ravzar. They are safeguarding the Mishkan, the Mikdash, that a non Kohen not come and participate in the Karbonos. They are assigned with the mission of safeguarding the sanctity of the Mishkan. Vishamrus Mishmartovis, Mishmeres, Koidalfne, Omoed, Lavod es Avodas, Hamishkan. Pasuk Zion. They safeguard the charge and the charge of the entire assembly to perform in the Mishkan. They preserve the purity of the utensils. And will give the Levim to Aaron and his sons. Nesunim nesunim hema me'es b'nei Yisrael. What does that mean? The Levim are given me'es from among the children of Israel. Rashi says, Pasuk Tess, me'es b'nei Yisrael k'mom mitoch b'nei Yisrael. Mishar kol ha'eda nivdalu l'kach b'gzeres ha'makom that God has said the Levim are separate, they're apart, they're distinguished from everyone else. V'hu naslam lo shnem ravet nes Levim nesunim. They are nesunim, nesunim. They are designated in the service of the Mishkan to assist the Kohanim. This is their this is their purpose, and the purpose is forever. Says the Ibn Ezra, nesunim laolam ohem ubneim tachtam. Not just in this generation. It's not just temporary, but they are designated forever. The Levim to fulfill. This to fulfill this role. Me'ez b'nei Yisrael, the Sforno says, Me'ez b'nei Yisrael, Rashi said Me'ez b'nei Yisrael means they are nivdal and they're separate, they're distinguished. But the Sforno says, what does Me'ez b'nei Yisrael mean? It means, how are the Levim going to survive? They're not lawyers and doctors, they're not businessmen and stockbrokers. How are the lawyers, how are the, how are the Levim going to survive? How will they be sustained? So the Svarno says, that's what Me'ez B'nei Yisrael means. She'ez chayvul la'aseis la'amaiserishon chalaf avodasam. In exchange for the fact that they are selflessly serving the Jewish people, they are supported by the community. How? Maiserishon. When the farmer harvests their produce, they separate a portion which is given to the Levium. The Levium live from, from the rest of the people. When the Jewish people enter the land of Israel and conquer and divide the land, where does the tribe of Levi go? Levium do not get their own land. All the other tribes have their own designated land. Those who learn the Daf know, in Yeshnochlin, we're learning the eighth paragraph of Basra. People from one tribe shouldn't marry someone from another tribe because then they'll lose the land and it should remain ancestral land. Levium don't have this issue. Levium don't have their own land. Why not? So look at the handout you have. We're reading here the Rambam at the end of Hilchah Shemitah The Rambam says the following. 
Levi Shiyarash is Avi Mo Yisra Gok Yisra Volaklavim. Fine. Kol Shevet Levi Musarm Shilo Yenchalu Beeretz Kenaan. The Rambam writes the entire tribe of Levi is warned they don't inherit in the land. And when there's a conflict, when they conquer a city and their spoils, the Levim do not benefit. Levim neither receive a portion of the spoils, nor do they inherit in the land. And so on. Next paragraph. Yero Elise says the Rambam. This rule that the Levim are eliminated from owning land in Israel and benefiting from the spoils is within the boundaries proper, not if a king conquers further land. Now why is this the case? Why don't Levim get a portion of the land? Why are they ineligible to receive the spoils? Says the Rambam, Nalacha Yud Beis. Lama lo zacha levi benachlas eretz Yisrael abbi vizasei mechav, b'pnei shehuvda laavodas Hashem l'sharso ulahoros drachav ha'yisharem u'mishbatav atzidikim larabim. Because the Levim are distinguished; they're separated to serve Hashem, to teach God's ways. The Levim are not only those who serve in the Mikdash or Mishkan; they are the teachers of Klal Yisrael. They are the role models of Kla Yisrael. They are the example for Kla Yisrael. Yoru mishpatech liYaakov v'soraschal liYisrael. The ficha chuv to lo midarche olam, and therefore they're exempt. Lo orchim melchama kishar Yisrael. They don't go to war. V'lo nochalim. They don't inherit land. V'lo zochin laatzim mekach gufam, and they don't acquire on their own. Elahim chel Hashem. They are the army of God. They are on the spiritual army, on the spiritual front, fighting the spiritual battle of being the role models of maintaining a high level of spirituality for the people. Now you get to Halachah Gimel. Listen to this: Velo Shevet Levi Bavad, and it's not just those who genetically descend from the tribe of Levi. Anyone from the world who has a generous spirit and understands and wants to separate themselves from the service of Hashem, v'halach yashar k'mashah asara lokim uparak me'al tzavaro adachesbonos arab mashabikshu bnei adam arizen eskadish kodesh kadoshim v'yashem chalko v'nachalasa liolam. To be eligible to be like Levi, exempt from going to war and not having your own land. But being supported by the community, anyone who says, "I'll sit and learn Torah, I'll teach Torah, I'll be a role model, exclusively dedicated to the advancement of Torah," is eligible to join the tribe of Levi, if not literally and genetically, but to join in the mission of the tribe of Levi. And they are then eligible to be supported by the community. Just like the Kohanim were given Truma, the Levim were given the Meiser, those who want to be in the community Kolel, sit and learn and teach and inspire, should be supported by the community. So here in the last halacha, in Hilcha Shemitah the Rambam writes, Kolel Amol of the world, quote, the Rambam writes, 
that it's not just the tribe of Levi who serve this purpose, but anyone can voluntarily join the tribe of Levi if you're willing to forfeit your own land and you're willing to dedicate yourself to the study and teaching of Torah, you can qualify to be supported by the community, you can qualify to be part of the spiritual mission of the tribe of Levi. So this Rambam would seem to indicate that learning in Kolel, getting paid by the community to sit and learn, is completely legitimate. It's meritorious, it's virtuous, it's praiseworthy, it's righteous. Those who are the Yechidei Skula, somebody who has the zitzvleish, the ability to sit and concentrate, someone who can live a consistent life, a life of being a role model, can voluntarily sit and learn and demand of the community to support them. On the other hand, the Rambam writes elsewhere. In Hilchos Talmud Torah, the Rambam writes the following. Anyone who says, you know what? I'm going to sit and learn all day. I'm not going to work. I'm going to sit and learn all day. I, how will I put food on my table? How will I pay my rent? How will my children go to school? I'll collect staka. This is a tremendous chilal Hashem, says the Rambam. You are distorting and denigrating Torah. You're extinguishing the light of religion. And you're causing evil to yourself. And it costs you life in the world to come. It's pretty harsh. So here elsewhere, the Rambam Hilchus Talmud Torah says, if you say, you know what? I want to sit and learn. Working is for losers. I'm a, I'm a holy person. I want to sit and learn. I, how will I pay the bills? Yispanis menatzaka. Send envelopes. I'll stand outside the shul with my hand open. I'll knock on doors. And uh, people will pay for my kids' weddings. They'll pay my bills. So the Ramam doesn't say, look, I don't think that's right. The Ramam says, you lose your portion of the world to come. It's a chil Hashem. You're distorting the Torah. You're extinguishing the light. Unbelievable. The Rambam says, Torah is not a means for you to benefit in this world. By learning Torah, you can't use that to collect money. It's not a job. Learning Torah is not something you get paid for. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. It's something everyone has to do. Those who work hard and those who have free time. So, much ink has been spilled on this question. The stira in the Rambam. Contradiction in the Rambam. On the one hand, the Rambam here in Echus Talmud Torah describes sitting and learning in Kolo as an enormous chil Hashem. How could you get paid to sit and learn Torah? What are you doing? You're distorting God's will and vision. Learning Torah is incumbent on all of us equally. And you have to manage to do it within your life. The Rambam was a doctor. And yet, composed all of his great works, learned his great Torah. So here the Rambam says it's not an option getting paid to sit and learn. And in Hilchah Shemitah describing Shevet Levi, our Parsha, the Rambam says not only those who are in the technical genetic tribe of Levi, anyone can volunteer. Anyone can say, you know what? I'm signing up for the lifestyle. I'll sit and learn. Community should pay me. It's a steer. It's a contradiction. Which is the truth? So a lot has been suggested about this. Many answers have been given. Some say the Rambam's real view is what he writes in Luchas Tamatora on mass. 
The instruction for the community is that getting paid to learn is not an option. When he says the tribe of Levi, he's talking to the Yechide Skula. He's talking to the rare individuals, to those who will emerge to be the Gedolei Ador, the poskim of the generation, the Rasha Yeshiva. We need scholars. We need people whose shoulders we can, we can rest on and lean on. So for the Yechide Skula, they could be in the tribe of Levi, but that the Rambam never intended that a generation view as an option, that everyone, the default will be that you'll have communities that are entirely, voluntarily the tribe of Levi. For that, the Rambam in Hilchus Talmud Torah says, God forbid, a community who entirely see itself, that every child born automatically is in the tribe of Levi, who is counting on being supported by the community, that's a chil Hashem, says the Rambam. In Hilchus Shemitah V'yovel, he was talking about the Yechidei Skula, that is... The Kesef Mishnah. And his commentary on the Rambam understands the Rambam that way. But the Rambam on the whole views it like in Hilchus Talmud Torah, forbidden to collect money to learn Torah, except for the rare individuals, because we need. Lahavda, you have it in the secular world. You have academics, researchers who are paid, they have to publish, they produce. But even if they're not teaching as professors, but also professors, they're paid by the community, they earn grants of the community, because we want their breakthrough. We want their interpretations. We want their academic contributions. And the same is true in the world of Torah. You want to volunteer to be in the tribe of Levi and you qualify? You can't have the whole generation, even if they're trying to avoid a war, decide that they're going to go for an academic grant. You can't have a default, an assumption. So that's an answer many give. Rav Moshe has a tshuva about this. It's the third page of your handout. Rav Moshe Feinstein has a tshuva, binyan kabbalas pras the parnasasam me'akololim kadesh yichlul is gadol b'torah. Is it permissible to take a paycheck to sit and learn in kolol? And here, Rav Moshe quotes the Rambam and rejects it. B'davar ta'machacham arotin l'sat ta'amidei chachamim arotin l'sasik b'torah l'ach gimba b'yidiyas ha-torah b'kamosa ve'ichusa ta'amidei chachamim want to sit and occupy themselves with learning Torah and to gain about the quality and quantity of Torah v'nen in l'parnasam imashanot l'pras b'kololim, they want to get paid a stipend. V'chein arachanam anot l'pras v'amalamdim imatamidim v'rosh yeshivas anot l'pras l'parnasasam rebbe's malamdim mechanchim rosh yeshiva. Are they all allowed to get rabbis? Are they allowed to get paid for their learning of Torah and teaching of Torah? Im shaper avde o sheish malahar achar zev yemidus chasidus shlolus parnas mizeh. Says Reb Moshe, they're doing nothing wrong. The Ramah paskins this way, and the Shach, even though he brings the Kesav Mishnah, Ramosha says, guess what? Before the Rambam came along, people got paid for the learning and teaching of Torah. And after the Rambam, people got paid. This may be the Rambam's position, but the Ramosha rejects it. Halacha l'maysa. And he writes, V'afam l'dina halacha g'rambam, Hiskimu ken chokhmi adoros, Vishim eis lasos l'ashem meferos o'asecha, Shilu lo'aya parnasas halomdem amalamdem metsuya, Lo'aya yecholu l'troch b'torah k'ro'oi. That if rabbis wouldn't get paid, if rabbis wouldn't get paid, Rosh Yeshiva wouldn't get paid Torah Matahela. What would be with Torah? And that even our generation 
which sees the proliferation of kolalim all over, the vision of Rav Aaron Kotler in America, the Chazanish in Eretz Yisrael, was that so much Torah was lost, was obliterated by the Nazis Yemach Shemam, that there needed to be a generation of kolalim, of a Torah life, of a Torah learning lifestyle, in order to try to, can never replace, but try to replenish what was lost. Did they intend on it being in perpetuity, creating communities of poverty, who the default would be that everyone is in learning, even if they're not among the elite? One could debate whether that was their intent, whether they meant it in perpetuity or not. But Moshe says, Torah If we didn't have any kololim, what would our communities look like? If we didn't have Rashi Yeshiva, Rebbeim, Machanachim, Rabbanim, what would Torah look like? So even if Rav Moshe is right, Halacha Lemaisa says Rav Moshe, even if the Rambam is right, Halacha Lemaisa says, says Rav Moshe, nevertheless, sometimes you have to take drastic measures in order to preserve Torah, and that might be the case here, and why, and why the Rambam is, uh, is neglected. So this comes from our parsha, the special designation of the tribe of Levi, who played this role not only in the time of the Mishkan and the Mikdash, but who continued to play that role Ad Hayom Hazeh. I spoke last night to Hollywood as a uh, kolo, and they created an incredible siyum for the Hollywood community. They recruited people to learn Gemara, and they ended up, they thought they were going to have uh, 10, 15 people. They'd make a siyum in someone's house. 120 people signed up. They covered over 6,000 blot Gemara. It's unbelievable. So I had the great schus uh, of speaking last night at the uh, dinner at the siyum, and I talked about this Shevet Alevi, look at that impact on that community. 6,000 blot Gemara impact on a community because of the Shevet Alevi who, of their community, their community Kolo. So it's not something which was reserved only in our parsha in the time of the Mishkan or of the Mikdash. It's the role they play within the community uh, today. And Yehiratzon, that we should be zochah to have a community Kolo once again who can light up our community with the, uh, with the study of Torah. All it takes are the support as the Rambam said, of others, anyone who wants to uh, start a kolal, feel free to speak to me after this year. Have a very happy Yom Yerushalayim. We have a program 5.30 to 7.30 this afternoon. And then tomorrow morning, all morning, shiurim, video shiurim produced by the OU, tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening. Hope you'll participate. Wishing you a very happy Yom Yerushalayim.